This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to episode 24 of the Practice of Learning Teams. Today's podcast is part one of a two-part discussion with Gary Wong. Gary Wong is a complexity facilitator, or as I reference in this episode, more of a sense maker. Gary is based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Gary runs his own consulting practice focusing on complexity thinking and safety. This was one of those podcasts where the conversation was so deep and meaningful that the time just disappeared. The content was so good, I couldn't reduce it to our normal 30-minute format. Next episode, we'll continue the journey with Gary, and then I'll be joined by my fellow colleagues, Glynis McCarthy and Brent Robinson. We'll then conduct a mini-learning team of the key threads and themes from those conversations with Gary. Please... Join us now as we hear from Gary and his world of storytelling and making sense of complexity and safety. Welcome, Gary, to the uh, podcast, The Practical Learning Teams. Thank you for joining us from British Columbia. Thank you, Brent. I'm very happy to be with you today. And look, it's, it's been a long time coming, and, and I've been observing your, uh, your development over time and, and uh, enjoying your podcast with Todd and with others. And, and of course, I understand that you have a, a great appreciation of both New Zealand and Australia. Oh yeah, um, last November, and let me check the year, 2019, I had the opportunity of uh, coming down, staying at Sydney, doing a workshop, what I call adaptive safety with, um, with the safety professionals in Brisbane, then hopped across the water and did something similar with that in, um, in Auckland as well that's fantastic that's fantastic and look um i i am hopeful and and i and i keep saying this i'm hopeful that in 2022 we can organize some form of road show and, mm. and we can bring down people like yourself uh todd uh jay allen uh jeff life a whole bunch of people and we'll do a great road show around new zealand and australia and hopefully i am waiting for the invitation i'm all yeah. excited by then <laughs> I think I think it'd be just as much fun being on stage and and off stage. <laughs> okay, you, well, you betcha. I mean, um, sadly, I've spent uh, too many an evening with Todd um, in, in, in the US. So uh, absolutely. But what happens on tour stays on tour, as they say. So well. yes, right. <laughs> so Gary, uh, like everything else, I thought it was really useful for you to sort of help to um, sort of share a little bit about, about, about your own journey. And and uh, you know and where you think the opportunity for learning comes from, because our listeners really appreciate sort of getting those different perspectives and those different views from different people, because it, it, it's, it's supposed to be called safety differently for a reason. So, <laughs> yeah, Lear learning is interesting. Uh, I mean, when you just look at the word itself, what is it? You're learning something new, whether it's a skill or some knowledge, but then you got to apply it. So. I'm an engineer, Brent, so I kind of follow theory, application, and practice. So I, first of all, learn it as some sort of a theory. Then I go, well, that's cool, but where can I use it? Where can I apply it? Which is cool. 
But then once you go like, oh, I can apply it in safety or in operations, then it's kind of like, I need to get my, roll up my sleeves and get some practice. Or as we say, praxis makes perfect. So that's kind of learning for me. Then along my journey here, of course, you, um, you come across things like Peter Senge did with the learning organization, the fifth discipline. Oh, what does this kind of mean here? Then we start to really recognize that it's just not all about the technology. It's about the human aspects as well. Where maybe back in the early 20s, you know, when we, had, we took people, we treated them as cogs of a machine because it was all about production, you know, using the technology and making sure that those humans don't screw up the process. And if they do, throw them out and bring someone else in here. Well, that lasted for a while there. And of course, we moved into the human factors because we can't keep on going that way. And in some respects, um, this is where the unions, you know, for them, they came on and became a voice for the workers saying, we, 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 we've got to stop doing this here. And that kind of like opened up eyes. We kind of got into that um, uh, learning organization, business process re-engineering era of the 80s and the 90s here. So humans were no longer cogs in the machine, but now they were just a part. You know, they were just a part, you know, of a system. The other parts being technology and process. And I kind of got involved in that. I drank the Kool-Aid in that, really got into it. Being an engineer, why not? I really liked the idea. I got involved in organizing um, the different teams that would be, oh, there's an IT team for the technology and there's a business analyst process team. And then we'd have all the HR folks forming the people team. And I'm always interested to see how they would, we would do that reductionist thing, break up the teams, let them work independently, Every week we would kind of bring them together just to make sure that they're kind of talking to each other here. And at the end of the project here, hopefully, hopefully everything would kind of work together. But it always didn't kind of work together here. And in hindsight, the learning for me, if you like, is that we didn't really understand the importance of relationships and interactions. Right. And this is it. So in the, what we call the order system, where you can break things down and put them back together, just like repairing an engine in a car, it works just fine. But over in the complex system, we're dealing with mayonnaise. How do you break down mayonnaise into its ingredients? And the answer is, you really can't. But we try to anyways, and, it doesn't some, and sometimes it fails, and then we scratch our heads. Well, what are we learning from this? The key learning that we're discovering now is that you've got to understand, are you in the ordered system where things can be broken down? Or no, you have to work holistically in the complex system here. And we're also saying too, another learning is, this is not an either or, Brent. This is a both end. Yeah, and you I, just I, got I, to understand as a learning team, what are you dealing with? Because as a learning team, we can get really good and train the team members to be good at using a hammer. But what we also have to do is get to understand you can't, because every, if you get really good at using a hammer, everything looks like a nail, mm -hmm. right? Even if it's a screw, but you don't know any better, you're gonna pull that out of your toolkit and start bashing away at a screw, wondering what's wrong with this darn screw here. Maybe do you do more damage in the organization? Oh, absolutely. And, and look, and, and we, we sort of 
coined that phrase weaponization. Mm. Okay. We're really good at taking systems. We're really good at taking those systems and breaking them into um, into linear processes. And oh, yeah. then train people and, and then wonder why they become weaponized. I was recently doing a review. Um, um, when we wrote the book of the practice of learning teams, we did something quite controversial. We, we talked about the value that root cause could be with a learning team. Mm -hmm. now, now, a whole lot of people were out with pitchforks and, and burning stakes saying that, you know, you, you can't do that. But what we did was we actually went back and we looked at what was the purpose of root cause. And its purpose and how it's been applied has been weaponized. And, and what we identified was that, you know, root, root cause is supposed to be, is supposed to be used to, to learn about the future from focus events that may not have occurred yet. Mm -hmm. so it yeah. can be used to understand about things that have happened, but it can also be used to understand about things that haven't happened yet. And what we talked about when we looked at the, when we looked at learning teams, what, what we found was that storytelling was extremely powerful absolutely amazingly powerful. But what we found was that there was this thing called latent knowledge that existed in work teams. And latent knowledge was this knowledge that a person couldn't bring out in that storytelling process unless they aligned it with something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what we found was that we converted a root cause into a critical reflection component. So that once the storytelling was, was finished and people were really on board and they enjoyed it and they valued, the facilitator was able to, from an assurance point of view, just get a little bit more out of them. So, so say, for instance, if during the learning team um, there hadn't been any conversation about the need for supervision or what supervision looked like or what, what was good supervision in the work that you do, then the facilitator was able to then ask that curious question of that group. Because through the storytelling, they didn't think about, you know, uh, how, does how does supervision support successful work, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas in root cause, we've used it to find failure, yeah. which was yeah. the person wasn't supervised, supervisor wasn't present, uh, you know, all the usual, you know, the, what we call the dark end of safety. I think one of the other key learnings is understanding that, okay, I have an engineering background, so I have a body of knowledge that yes. I've learned from education and practice, whatever. You've been in the business IT world, done the same sort of stuff here. And for me, starting back about 10 years ago, I got introduced to the world of anthropology and, and ethnography, basically storytelling here. And I'm going like, what the heck is this all about here? Yeah. Kind of got myself immersed in that and going like, oh my God, what ethnographers can, can kind of do is understand, answer the why question. Because as you know, when we do um, IT stuff, data analytics, we get a lot of big data, which is the what, the where, the who. Yeah. But we don't get the why. So why did the person behave this way here? And that's where the anthropology, the ethnography, it comes out because it has the context. Yeah. And context, as I think we all saying, is so important that you got it. And that's why you can help understand why people behave this way. Absolutely. Uh, it looks similar. I, I was um, about seven years ago, I, I, I did a piece of uh, work with organization um, around adult education. 
and um, you know, once again, adult ed is built on those great principles that you're talking about. Um, and it was the same thing. It was basically it was a it was a focus around um, uh, issues around literacy numeracy and the effect on the workplace. Mm-hmm. We actually did a lot of work around this thing called safety literacy, mm-hmm. which is that that people that have issues, particularly say people where English is a second language, mm-hmm. that basically we've got to stop dumbing down systems. Mm-hmm. That's okay. our approach at the moment. If someone doesn't understand, let, let's simplify, let's dumb it down. Okay. Well, a person with a learning difficulty is highly intelligent. The problem is that if we don't talk about stuff in a way that relates to them, how can they form that mental model or that mental mode? Because that's what matters to them at the end of the day. And and the classic one is in safety. The really good one in safety is that we constantly talk about uh, we talk about risk management and hazards, and, and we constantly talk about risk management. Is that you got to understand things like likelihood, probability, severity, consequence. I got to I got to tell you that 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 that, that language does not in the average um, uh, workbook of, for, for people. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Right. So what we talked about is we talked about things like chance and impact. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that we're discovering is that it's all about trying to, it's all about meaning making. Yeah. And even using the word story, we have to be careful with that. Good example is that even down in Australia, and these are my colleagues down in Australia, and they're saying, we may not be able to use the word story at all here. So we have to find a word like observation or experience as opposed to stories. I know that um, I had, and I had that experience when I was over in LA and I was talking, doing about story collecting, which we do to um, the HR manager. And she said, her, Oh, you mean those Hollywood type stories of fiction? And I go like, um, not really. But that's what she was born and raised on, Hollywood stuff. Yeah. Right. I'm going, no, we're really talking about real life experiences that people had that they can share with us as stories. So I was very careful and maybe we used the word narratives instead. Mm-hmm. We don't use that. Just to kind of tweak the language here because I was also dealing with um, a fair number of people that um, did not speak English was their second language, let's say here. So yeah. I had to find the language that kind of like work with them. So there's this whole another area where we're, we're trying to explore now with semiotics, looking at words, um, looking at symbols. I mean, you look at the world of safety and boy, we have a lot of symbols. What do they kind of mean? We love a good sign. We, we yeah. you know, and, but the sign, you know, it could be round, it could be hexagonal, it could be rectangular. They all have a bit of meaning, and the colors have something else. It can be, we have yellow, we can have a bit of black, we can have yeah. blue, because it Great. all has meaning. Yeah, and in a, in, a, in, a, in a webinar I was just on, I was just, I was just kind of saying this and figured, you know, what we don't have is kind of like a symbol for the washroom yet. You know, because, and then I kind of showed pictures of, here's the different symbols representing male, female, um, transgender, you know, we, we've got all these different things here. And somebody kind of said, or, yeah, there's a standard and they're trying to work on a universal standard for washrooms. <laughs> wow. wow, I mean, like, it's kind of like, it took me to a whole new level going like, 
signs are so powerful, right? Really, really powerful. But that's all about meaning making. And that's all about stories. And this is how we actually learn as well. Yes. But the problem is signs don't give meaning. Signs, signs are the what. Maybe, and they come, maybe a touch of the how, but never the why. <laughs> yeah. So this is why it comes back down to interpretation. And the way that we collect stories, Brent, is we actually will gather stories. And everybody can gather stories. I mean, it's, it's, it's natural. We're natural storytellers. So there's very, a lot of power there. We collect them. But once you gather them, the question is, what do you do with them? And a lot of cases, if you're a consultant and you collect 40 stories, your interviews, whatever here, you can see what's going on in your mind and you're figuring out, you're, okay, I see some themes popping up or some, there's some patterns here. Mm-hmm. But we also know too, and we can't help it, we all have our cognitive biases. Of course. And before you know it, we start saying, oh, I've seen that before. Yeah. And how maybe you haven't, whatever, but that's what comes out here. So we had to try to find a method. And when I say we, I'm referring to um, Dave Snowden and Cognitive Edge. Dave's been doing this for the past 20 years. So I've been one of the the colleagues that have been moving the practice along. And he was just kind of saying, yeah, we we really, the best thing we can do is get the authentic voice. What do you mean by that? That's the storyteller. We have to get the storyteller to interpret it. So if I were to give you a story here and you kind of say, well, that's really negative as a consultant, the story is there. Oh no, I meant that to be positive. Mm -hmm. So we have to capture that. So we actually have sense maker software that captures the interpretation from the storyteller. So from that, those interpretations, we can now produce these maps, these what we call narrative landscapes. And now, you know, we've had so many advances in data visualization tools and data analytic tools here. We can actually create a 2D contour map, show that to a decision makers and go like, this is what's happening today. You can see the contour maps. You can see where people are clustered. That's what we call attractors. And then, so really the question is, why do you think they're kind of behaving this way here? We can always, now we can ask a whole different set of really interesting questions that we couldn't do before. And the big intervention question is, where would you like more stories like these, fewer stories like that? Okay, absolutely. And, and, and we talk about the fact is that, um, you know, um, the, when, when events happen, we, we, we see that obvious divide between workers imagined and workers done. Yeah. Okay. And, and I'm yet to see an event where there wasn't a divide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People don't really ask that, but there's always going to be a divide because that divide is normal. Yeah, normal, vari- normal variability. Normal right? variability. Yeah. And, and, and I sometimes ask myself, um, in a lot of cases, that this, this divide or this gap, as we call it, or, or chasm, if, it, if it's a, a, a big one, is simply an accumulation of all those micro changes or those micro learnings that have happened. Yeah. But those micro learnings aren't intentional learning. They're what we call incidental learning that, that the workers had in that whole um, sort of complex world they're having to, to, to work in. And, and we sort of said that, wouldn't it be great to be able to gather intelligence at the micro learning end? 
And how can we turn that learning from being incidental learning to being deliberate learning? Yeah, right, right. And, and it's the same thing that you're talking about, because what we said was that if the organization can start to see these patterns, mm -hmm. then what it can do is that the organization can then be curious to find out more. Yeah, right. So we're, the time we're using yeah. it as an intervention tool. We're basically yeah. saying, you know, we want to yeah. stop that from happening rather than actually understanding why it's happening, which is that deeper context, if that makes sense. Sort of. Yeah, right. So when I'm in front of decision makers, or so <clears throat> I'm kind of saying, it really boils down to this here. Um, we want to capture those narratives, experience, where people will say, good old Star Wars, I've got a bad feeling about this. Mm -hmm. I want to capture those early so you can do something about them before they turn into stories like, I knew that was going to happen. Yeah. Right? So how do we do that here? Is there a way that you can capture those things here? So I also, I kind of bring in that blue line and black line idea as well, because I kind of say, that's where the learning is taking place. Hmm. Not at the end, you know, when the incident occurs, a little late. You want to capture all those things here and um, you, then you can pull in all the stuff about we should be collecting stories where things go right. Safety too, if you like. Well, what was, the, what was the change in the conditions that the frontline worker had to do to adjust to these unforeseen sort of forces that came out, whether it was wind, rain, or whatever, what did they do? And I come from the premise of safety is an emergent property of a complex adaptive system. Mm -hmm. So it's not created, whatever, it, it emerges here. So I kind of suggest, well, you know, if you see this and it's starting to rain, you go and you put your rain gear on, you're actually creating a condition, which you have control of, of putting on your stuff, that enables safety to emerge. But you also have to be careful because you put now some heavy, you know, heavy stuff and your flexibility is maybe you've enabled danger to emerge as well. We don't know. Why? Because we've got these things called tipping points, mm -hmm. typically hidden. Uh, with machines, they're probably more explicit because we have gauges. Oh, you're going to overload, whatever here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. With humans, yeah, tipping points are so hidden, right? Every day a person comes to work, you don't know if the the state of mind the person's in, whether they're tired, had an argument, or really, really happy because their cricket team won, whatever, right? But, right, so all these things are there, which may enable danger, not safety to emerge here. So we work off that premise here. But if we, the other thing that we want to do too is find out from those workers, so what did you do in order to enable safety to emerge here? And quite often they'll go like, well, you know, we, we did have to bend the rule, whatever here. Mm -hmm. Okay, I understand that normal variability. Uh, what did you do? So they kind of going, well, we did this, we did that. Oh, these are these heuristics that these people kind of know. So one of the key things that we're beginning to capture now is all this tacit knowledge yes. that's in the mind of the person. Mm -hmm. We're beginning to kind of like, you know, we can take that tacit knowledge, at least document it, 
as a narrative, as a story. Then go around and kind of saying, well, this is what Joe does. What do you do, Pete? What do you do, Anna? Then you realize, hey, there is a pattern here. This is a good heuristic here. Maybe we should allow everybody else to kind of going, if you have this situation, let's use these heuristics here. But let's also be mindful that for this situation, it may not work. We don't know. At least it will increase the chances or probability that success will emerge. And look, um, uh, we we talk about this thing about um, that uh, uh, workers have been have been losing a skill around critical thinking and critical reflective skill Mm -hmm. and that type of skill is really essential when you're dealing with dynamic risk yeah Yeah. and and a lot of our rules framework that we've been applying sort of has been removing that that um element of that critical thinking And, and when we talk about that what what we're not we're not saying that the person's a rocket scientist what what we're saying is that that person is able to reflect, and we, we talk about this concept of uh, learn, do, and challenge. Mm-hmm. So, so rather than learning something, then applying it, okay, we're actually saying you need to challenge yourself and ask yourself why. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, what, what's that component that what's that that's meaningful to you? Because it's that 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 reflective component, that challenging component, that helps build that skill for us as 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 humans. Because everything else we're doing has been so systemized to hell, Mm -hmm. we don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, Yeah, that's to to me, that's that's the downside of best practices. Best practices are great because they have worked in the past and hopefully they'll continue to work here. It's easy because, you know, there's no no thinking. This is the, the practices and this is what you do here. What we're trying to do now is say, I like to give more credit to workers who can think. You know, we're not ants or birds or termites. We actually can think as humans here. And because of that, we can make choices here. We're saying here, um, we're not gonna give you a book of recipes because you are not recipe followers. We want you to be chefs. We want you to be cooks. So by being a chef, what does that mean? That means that you're, you're going along, you're creating your cake, and you look in the fridge, you go like, oh, look at that, we ran out of milk, we ran out of eggs, whatever here. As a recipe follower, you're kind of like snooker. What do I do now, right, and scramble. As a chef, you're kind of going, I understand the principles behind cooking. Okay. Yep. Therefore, I know what to substitute to kind of give that right taste, texture, flavor that's required. Absolutely. That's what we're trying to develop. Yeah, no, look, I, I, I'm with you because because we know in cooking, and, and I trained a little bit as a chef, that you oh. basically have to have, um, you know, salt, sugar, and fat are the three components. Yeah. Okay. And heat. And heat. I read the book. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> the the day, you, you, you can have something that's low in fat, but it's, it's had to be substituted with something high in sodium or, yeah. or sugar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and it's going to be substituted with something high in fat or or, or salt. That that's because those are the three things that people um um like. They're the three core elements. So absolutely, you know, a good a good chef is always someone who can substitute because right. the 
It's about yeah. creating that thing in the brain because because food for us is actually, you know, it's about enjoyment. Yeah. yeah. So now what we want to do is be able to develop the habit where workers like to share their cooking experience on the on the job. You know, as a chef, I substituted a singer and we successfully finished a job. Those are the good stories. We want to share those things and capture those things as well, right? So, so, so we try to make it easy for them, Brent. Um, when we say capture here, we know that we can, and we, everything we try to do is online because we have the tools mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're in an office here, desktop worker, you can go to the desktop, you can fill it in, you can quickly do your story, you can what we call interpret it or signify it, then there it is. For the, for the field, um, worker in the field, you can actually have an app on your iPhone or your Android phone. And we have extra um, powers there because you don't have to actually type in a story because that's tough. You can actually do a voice recording. Mm -hmm. You can actually take a picture of the situation as well. And what's that telling us is that the story itself is useful, but from a point of granularity, it's down here. What we're really trying to get to is the next level up, which is the patterns, which you've already talked about here. Yeah, that's right. It's that content. We want to capture the patterns, yeah. right? Yeah. So we can actually come, and um, one of the one of an area that you're really becoming aware of now with um, COVID nineteen and the next normal is the concerns about well being. Um, we're noticing that, my God, there's a fair number of youth suicides that are happening here. Um, I think that's something we're going to have to somehow adjust and make some changes on here. Well, what we're trying to do is capture those sort of stories and again, prevent them before they can, before some failure takes place, some tragedy takes place there. Yeah, I mean, you know, rather than, um, sadly, rather than learning from misery, because yeah. that's a lot of what happens at the moment, sort of learning after the fact, because it's hard. Yeah. And uh, look, I absolutely understand where you're coming from, because uh, it's, it's, it's challenging, because it, it doesn't matter what anyone, um, how they say it, but everyone is affected where you are placed in a situation for a period of time um, where there is uncertainty, where's that loss of control. So, and you've seen it exhibit it. Um, we, we had an example where, where basically there was, um, there's, there was a run on, on toilet paper as a good example. <laughs> we, we were moving into uh, level four and, and uh, there was a huge run on toilet paper. Now, we don't import toilet paper, we make it. <laughs> but what I didn't understand was that I can see this behavior going on, the herd mentality kicking in. Yeah. I'm saying to myself, um, I didn't know that you, that you died from diarrhea with COVID-19. I did, didn't know that it was you know, that type of disease. Because I'm trying to understand, what's this pattern of behavior about? Mm -hmm. It's just that whole thing about uncertainty and, and the human ability to want to uh, have some form of control. And that was the early stages. Um, and it hasn't changed. It's just we've evolved. Yeah, yeah. We've evolved. So when I, yeah, yeah. So when I do my adaptive safety, I, I try to distinguish between the order system and yeah. the complex system. 
Because in the order system here, and again, it's at both end, in the order system, root cause analysis, um, all those things work well. Why? Because it's what we call a causal system. Causal means if then relationships exist there. Yeah. If you do this, then you get there, which means that the system, the environment is stable, it's predictable, mm -hmm. it's consistent, and there's a lot of certainty. And even if there is a bit of uncertainty here, we can actually use those probability statistics, figure out what the risk is, then we can calculate severity as well as frequency around here. And that makes us happy because there is some sense of control of what's going on here. We've got to that order, absolutely. And, and you know, we know that, that that approach is really great on objects. Yeah, very much. It's a very mechanistic machine yep. perspective here. And I kind of relate that to what engineering is all about from my background. So I, I do like scratch my head and kind of go like, ooh, resilience engineering. It does carry the flavor of engineering where if I, we go into the complex system, it's different. And engineering doesn't quite work there because it's more ecological. It's more holistic. It's more working with mayonnaise. It's also what we call dispositional. So what does that mean? Dispositional means as far as humans, there is a tendency for people to go that way, but there's no guarantee they're going to go that way. Yeah. Right? Why? Because of the emotional factors. We don't know. There's some other reasons here, but we thought they'd go X, but they did a sharp right and went Y. What's going on here? Right? And it's not right or wrong. It's like we just need to understand that's what human behavior is about here. And a lot of it is because of relationships, interactions here. And that, of course, brings this whole world about psychological safety here. I'd love to speak up, but I fear retribution or looking like a fool because if I was a rational sort of objective person, I would share my story. But I'm irrational, I'm emotional. Um, I don't want to share that story, so I'll stay silent on it. Or it could even be a, what we call a cultural norm. So it may be that in your culture, it's not appropriate to, to, you know, to do those things. Or, and, and I think we have to stop asking ourselves why and start to provide that environment where a person can see, um, can see I, I suppose, that them giving their view is actually healthy yeah. and, that, and that their view is considered. So, so like all these things, um, what, what I constantly see is that organizations go, that go down the sort of these different journeys around things like hop and learning teams, I always say to them, what are you going to do with the information? Mm -hmm. You're going to go from getting a little to a lot. Mm -hmm. And the moment you don't do something with it, the moment that people aren't part of the solution, the moment you don't provide that feedback, you're going to undo all the good that you've tried to do. Yeah, yeah. You can't and start and stop. Yeah. And even if you're a consultant and you're really good at uh, doing traditional surveys and doing questionnaires and interviews, and you go around and you collect a whole pile of stories here, maybe you're dealing with uh, 100, maybe 150 stories, you know, as an example here. We have actually projects where we collect 40,000 stories 
how how did you there's no way you can sit down and try to read 40,000 stories this is why the importance of looking next level up at the patterns that kind of form patterns of occurrence clusters all those yeah. great, great things absolutely the sense maker software gives you the abilities that if people look at a cluster of stories and they go oh, what's behind this we can actually click on one of the dots which is a story Right. And the story pops out so you oh, can get a sense. Absolutely. Which is ah, I see what's going on here. Which is amazing. And, and certainly yeah. I'll be looking at the technology, Gary, because that, that sounds great because it reminds me of a project back in my dark days of IT where our focus was purely on patterns of occurrence. So mm -hmm. Understanding where those patterns existed. And if you understand the pattern, you, you've got the ability to be able to more influence the future, not predict, but be able to influence. Uh, look, it's no different. We, we, we did a project using learning teams um, where this organization had people in the field doing um, uh, emergency repairs. So the traditional means of safety was to basically, you know, do a hazard ID. Well, I've got to tell you, every situation they went into, the situation was unsafe because that's why it broke down. Mm -hmm. And all they're doing is they're simply having to write down the same hazards they're always having to encounter. So, so we said, what's the learning from repeating the same thing? Because the person has to be exposed to those hazards. They have to exist. Mm -hmm. they have to be electrical, there has to be hydraulic, there has to be mechanical. That's just normal. Exactly. And what we did was we, we turned it around to basically say, when did that person feel that the system was in a state that was safe enough for them to start their work? Yeah. That was putting it back to them. Okay. Because because they're working alone, but they're more importantly, we wanted them to reflect at the end of that job, and we wanted that reflection. So so what we did we we created a little tool for them, just a little app on their phone, because because it was integrated as part of their um, time logging and other things. Mm -hmm. At the end of the job, all they had to record is they had to basically say, "This is how I thought it would go. This is how I thought the job would go." This is how the job actually went in my mind. Mm -hmm. Where did I have to make do? Yeah, yeah, nice. have to yeah. Make do? yeah. And those keywords, those keywords then got captured. Now, we took a very simplistic approach was that we then generated a word cloud. Yeah, we do that as well. Yeah. Very simple mechanism. The organization was collecting about 6,000 metrics a month. Mm -hmm. They're saying, what do we do? What do we do? And all we did was we got a group of workers to get together every six weeks, run a learning team as a group of worker, looking at that word cloud. Yeah, cool. Now that's just a very simplistic overview. Whereas what you're saying is that you're providing that overview, but then you've got that context, that narrative that sits below it. Yeah. But what we found was that workers could identify four or five main clusters. Mm-hmm. Makes sense? Yep. Everything clustered up. And then as a group of workers, they ran, then ran a learning team to then get context to understand that. You're taking that whole next level, which is fantastic. Loving it. Yeah. So what we're doing also is understanding that, uh, you know, the big push towards leading indicators as opposed to lagging indicators here, and I'm, I'm all for leading. We also know, too, that attitudes are leading indicators. Yeah. I've got a bad feeling about this here. I know something is not good going to happen. Those are attitudes, right? They haven't happened yet. 
So yeah. there, but there's an attitude. There's a, there could be a propensity to do that here. We're trying to see if we can capture some of those things where it's kind of like, um, I don't feel good about Henry. You know, he's gone quiet all of a sudden here. Is that a weak signal saying that Henry may be having some tendencies towards doing some damage to himself? We don't know, but maybe we have to monitor that. The cool thing with technology, and we can use it, Brent, is we can actually gather stories on a 24-7 basis, anytime, anywhere you want that. What we can also do, too, is that we can create for management a dashboard, right. and it's a real-time dashboard. And I have a demo, um, it's called Safety Pulse, and you know, happy to give out the links and let people kick, the, kick at the tires. Cool. If you actually enter a story, you can actually then go into the dashboard and you can see where your story lands, but also where maybe it fits in one of these heat maps as well. So this allows the manager to kind of go like, oh my God, I can look forward as opposed to looking backwards through the mirror. Right. Well, there's, there's a reason why the rearview mirror is much smaller than the windscreen. No kidding. There, there's there a reason, if you think about it, there's a reason why the rearview yeah. mirror is tiny. Yeah. Yeah. The windscreen yeah. is large. Yeah. You can't tell by looking in the rearview mirror. <laughs> Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.